Well, in Ezra, and we're in chapter 8 this morning, this is our launching point into this chapter, and we're actually going to cover a great deal of it. But we are back in the book of Ezra, and we're back talking about the topic of spiritual leadership. This is where we have found ourselves in our study in this book. What I'm finding is, is that Ezra and Nehemiah... Uh, both as books of the Bible and the Old Testament are incredible studies on what it means to be a spiritual leader. Spiritual leadership is something that may, uh, you may sort of relegate to the pastor or to the elder as something that he's supposed to be concerned about and we're the followers, right? But really, I want to open it up and tell you that we're all called to be spiritual leaders in some form or fashion. One way or the other, you are called to be a spiritual leader. Whether you're a husband or a wife leading children or, or leading people to Christ or leading someone in a Bible study, we're all called to some form of being a spiritual leader. Really, the question is, what kind of spiritual leader are you? And how do you define spiritual leadership? As I look at the life of Ezra, I see in a man a person who is striking a unique balance that we all need to strike. It's really the balance of Jesus Christ and his leadership. We're called to be prudent. We're called to be wise. We're called to be planners. We're called to be organized. We're called to be uh, cautious. And then at the same time, we're also called to be bold. We're called to be risk takers. We're called to be um, people who put, their, put themselves out there. We're called to carry a balance. And this balance is struck by Ezra for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is simply this. We are called to reach people's hearts and lives for the sake and glory of Jesus Christ. We're called not to just live for goals that we're accomplishing in this world, like business goals or or, you know, transactions, or, you know, keeping a good household budget. I mean, all of those fall into the category of leadership. We're not just called to have neat and tidy, squeaky clean families and, you know, to be great parents with exemplary children. All of those are great goals to have. We're not just called to, you know, make payments on our house, to, to have a good family vacation, or to hold down a job. All of those are quantifiably under the category of leadership, but we're called to live for a kingdom that's not of this world. We're called to see the glory of God expressed through transformed lives. We're called at times to be risk takers, to be making ourselves vulnerable citizens of the kingdom where we put our hearts out there on display, where we tell people, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, I I can go this far, but I've got to draw a line because in my conscience, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a, a citizen of the Lord who is invisible to you, but to me, by faith, he's real and he's my king, and I wish that you would come to know him personally. I mean, there there is a real call to be vulnerable as a believer. And that's what we find in Ezra. We're going to see that this man of God, he puts a lot at risk for the sake of his own faith and for the glory of God. That's what we find in chapter 8. Before we look there, I want to show you from the very lips of Christ what this balance looks like. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. This is sort of a way that I can frame up the leadership of Ezra as, as Jesus actually 
gives the template for all spiritual leaders by giving a summary statement to his disciples. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's the balance of being a spiritual leader. Wise, cautious, calculated, making informed decisions, and yet at the same time, innocent as doves. And that idea is that you are being willing to be vulnerable in the mission for God. A dove, you think probably, first of all, in terms of um, the symbol of holiness, but really that symbol isn't at play in this context. You know, doves are beautiful and white and sort of give you that sense of purity, and I understand that. But the picture of a dove here is a picture of simplicity and vulnerability. A dove, you know, back in ancient times, or I guess even today, would be an easy catch for the fowler. fowler. In other words, a dove is, is a, an animal that's out there and it's beautiful, but it's a pretty simple bird. Uh, one, recently, I was walking out on the Potter Marsh boardwalk with my kids, and there was sort of a, uh, a nature display out there. They had different stations for children from the parks and recreation outfit here, and they had an owl, a horned owl, and an eagle, an eagle sitting right on this poor, innocent, you know, woman right on her arm. And I thought, man, if that eagle suddenly turned on that woman, it's not going to go well. And I actually asked one of the other workers, what are the chances of this going bad? And he said, you know, we do our best and we kind of, you know, have some safety precautionary things in mind. But really, that eagle could, you know, just rip out that lady's eye just in a, a nanosecond. You know, this is a, a strong, cunning bird. But doves aren't like that. Doves are the opposite. Doves are easy prey. Hosea uses the idea of a dove for Israel, where the Lord is speaking to Israel and saying, Oh, Ephraim, you're like a dove, a senseless, simple bird. Now, bringing that idea to, to this in Matthew 10, Jesus is saying, Listen, there needs to be some sort of almost boyish naivete as you go out on the front lines for the mission work of God. Look at the context here. It's literally, you're a sheep that's going into the wolf pack. Verse 16. It says, Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. 1 Corinthians 13, practically speaking, it says, Love believes all things, hopes all things, and adores all things. There is a sense in which we are, we're cunning, we're wise like a serpent, we're not, we're not trying to pick a fight, we're not trying to put ourselves in danger, we don't think it's more spiritual if we're in more danger, but at the same time, we're open to some conflict. We're open to the pushback from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're willing to confront an errant brother or sister, a marriage that could be on the cusp of disaster. We're willing to put ourselves out there and say, you know, I think there's something wrong. Your husband or your wife, that relationship over there is inappropriate and that's going to destroy your life. You know, your, your child is straying like a sheep here and it's, it's going to go really bad if we don't talk about these things. 
You're willing to give some of your money or a whole lot of your money to the mission of the church, the mission of the advancement of the kingdom of God, and sort of put your bank account at risk. Why? Because we're, we're spiritual leaders. We're not just world leaders. We're not just living in this world and leading our lives or leading our business or leading our classroom or leading our whatever. We're leading for a mission that's greater, that causes us to be risk taking leaders and we want to learn from the very life and lips of a risk taker remember Ezra go back there in Ezra chapter 8 this is a man who is dealing um, with a great task and mission to lead at this point 5,000 people 1,500 men that are hand selected by him down from Babylon 900 miles down the Euphrates down to Jerusalem to establish strong word-centered worship down there. There's been a wave of exiles that have gone down 80 years before. Um, many, 50,000 of them that had been exiled up to Babylon, they were given passage back down. Now Ezra's shoulder is tapped, and he's the man of the hour to lead a, a strong leadership team down there to bring word worship, word centered, God honoring worship. And we learn in verses 21 through 23 about his heart and his leadership from his very lips because Ezra is talking in first person here. Let's follow as I read. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and, and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, what we have here is we have a man of God who's in a quandary. He's in a personal debate or a crisis moment in his leadership. In other words, he's got responsibility for a lot of people, probably 5,000 people with the men that are recorded and, and accounted for at the beginning of chapter 8. And then you've got wives, you've got older people, and you have children that are specifically named here in verse 21. He's also going to be loaded down with a caravan of four tons of silver and gold that you can read about verses 24 and following after this text that the king Artaxerxes loads him down with to fill up in the temple. Now Ezra is posed with an issue. His problem is this. Do I ask for a military escort or not? Because if I ask for a military escort, am I in some way going against what I keep saying over and over again? And that is that the hand of the Lord and his protection is on me. This is one of those moments where it's like, you know, is Ezra filled with faith or stupidity? Right? Is it just a suicide mission or not? Because uh, verse 31 talks about enemies and ambushes that are on the way. It's 900 miles, 10 miles a day, loaded down with, uh, it's kind of like, you know, an armored car, armored car with all the money, you know, from the bank, but no armor on it. It's just wide open for people to jump into and take from him. It's, it's a scary situation. And it's also Ezra looking at these children and saying, look, you know, it's kind of like a parent. You're going, are the child safety locks on or not? I, I want these kids to be safe on this journey. And so do I ask for the military escort? 
If you were to look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, you'll see that Nehemiah, who's the leader to follow Ezra later on, he's going to get a military escort from Artaxerxes. It's kind of a unique study to think, you know, Nehemiah's spirituality isn't any less than Ezra's. It's not wrong to take a military escort. It's just for Ezra in this situation, is for him, he believes that his testimony for God and God's testimony is on the line if he asks for the military escort. That's what's going on. It's a testimony of faith. It's kind of like in our day-to-day lives where, you know, there are times where we are cautious and prudent. We say, look, we need to, we need to save back our resources. We need to be very careful right now. Or we say, you know what, there's a need. It's going to put me at risk. It's going to perhaps put my children's comfort at risk. It's going to put my job at risk, but I'm going to meet that need. I'm going to take some extra time and and put it towards this because I think in my conscience, God wants me to do that. That's the study of what's going on here. Now, the, the stakes are very high in what's taking place, but it's a very interesting study to watch. And, and really what we're looking at is, personally, when is it right to risk it? And how do you risk for the right things? That's sort of my idea. How do you know when to risk it? How do you know when to put you know, your time, talent, resources, family in jeopardy for the glory of God? How do you know when to put your own reputation on the line for the glory of God? How do you know when to go there and go public with your faith or it's better to fly under the radar? How do you know when, like Jesus, you say, look, before Abraham was, I am, so take stones up and come after me. And, and then he sort of stealthily gets away. How do you know when to leave it or when to get crucified? How do you know when to be Paul, who is at one point stoned, and at an earlier point he's, he's rescued and lowered down behind the wall, behind enemy lines, by a basket, right? How do you know when to leave or when to put yourself out there? That's really the issue that's going on. And just to sort of give the punchline away, I'll say this. The Bible often doesn't script exactly what we're supposed to do. But the Bible absolutely tells us who we are supposed to be as we make our decision. He's talking, the Bible always shepherds the heart and the attitude and gives us the sufficient tracks to run on in terms of making wise decisions. But oftentimes it won't script exactly what we're supposed to do. And that's a very important principle to learn because we get into a lot of sticky wickets. We get into a lot of interesting situations in life, and we got to be wise with the Word of God. That's what we're learning, how to be wise and how to be a risk-taker. Well, first of all, notice in verse 21 and 22 what Ezra was willing to risk. What did he put on the line? First of all, he put on the line safety and goods. Look at verse 21. It says, I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So he's wise here. He's wise as a serpent. He's cunning. He's uh, thinking things through. He's organized. And he says, hey, we're at this tributary point. It's a little tributary called Ahava on the way down uh, sort of the trans-Euphrates highway going down to Jerusalem. He says, we're going to stop here and we're going to pray. We're going to call a fast. When you call a fast in the Bible, that means we're in a crisis. I'm in a crisis. I'm, I'm looking down the path here and it's very dangerous and I need to know whether or not I need to ask for you know, military support to come and guard us. 
You know, it's like joining the army. You, you know, I'm joining the army, and I know whenever it's God's time, I'll die, you know, and it's all up to him. But at the same time, you're still called to be wise about what you're doing with your M16, right? I mean, just because you believe in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean that you go into the battle without any bullets. And so he's really in that moment of decision-making. And so he's at this place, and he calls a fast and it's a fast that's filled with faith. It's not a crisis of faith, it's a crisis of decision. Because you see, he says that we might humble ourselves before our God. So just because you know God's hand or permanent protection is on you, you're still called to live humbly before your God and say, God, what do I do in this situation? I don't know. And you might not audibly tell me what I'm supposed to do, but I need to come to a place where I am not trusting my own resources or self to get from where I am to where I need to be. So I'm humbling myself before God to seek from him a safe journey. It's not wrong to pray for physical safety on a journey. That's what he's doing. He says for ourselves, our children, and our goods. So he's praying. He's calling everybody to pray. But he's willing to put his children these people in his care, you know, the junior high bus going down to Seward. He's putting that on, um, on a vulnerable track here. He's willing to go there. He's also willing to risk his own reputation. And I see that in verse 22. He says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers. I mean, he's really looking into his own heart and saying, Listen, I, I don't want to to go back on what I've been saying to the king. That would be shameful. Now, that usage of shame there, or being ashamed, does not mean that Ezra was sinning or sinfully ashamed. It wasn't a, you know, that he was filled with pride at that point. The word actually can literally be translated delayed. In other words, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. That's what's going on with Ezra. He's stuck. And he's just saying, I'm stuck here, and we need to pray. Because I don't know what to do. I'm looking at these babies. I'm looking at these, these people in my care. I'm looking at four tons of silver and gold and how vulnerable I'm going to be here. And I need to pray about it and I'm, I'm stuck here. But he's willing to put his reputation on the line. If things go bad, if they are ambushed, if people are killed, he's willing to sacrifice his own rep. That's what we got to do sometimes. You say, look, I don't want to teach in the church because I stumble over my words. I don't want to, you know, put my ignorance on display. I'm afraid to do that. Sometimes we have to be stuck between a rock and a hard place and say, I know I'm supposed to serve. I know I'm supposed to give. I know I'm supposed to do things, but it's going to make me more vulnerable, and I'm stuck right now, and I have to pray my way clear on that. That's what we have to do sometimes, and that's what Ezra was willing to put out there. He's putting himself out there and saying, I'm going to pray our way through this and make a decision, make a judgment call. There's a calculated risk. Let me just point out why this wasn't just him shooting, you know, shooting from the hip or flying by the seat of his pants. Look at Ezra chapter 8. You have a list here, a genealogy, and I'm not going to work through all the names, but I just want to point out that he has picked the heads. Verse 1 says these are the heads of their father's houses. He's picked the cream of the crop leaders to go with him because he knew that if he picked the leaders that the followers would follow on. So he picked the top people from their different tribal groups to lead out on this mission. It says, and this is the genealogy, verse 1, of those who went up for me from Babylonia. 
And that's important because the genealogy really matches the same genealogy of Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 shows that there are some good genes here. There's some good sort of lineage here that shows that the leadership had been trained, that they had, they had passed down the faith from generation to generation. So he'd picked very wise people to be with him on this mission. It's really the third generation of people that are going with him. And it's in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Look at um, the genealogy in verse 2. It says the sons of Phinehas and Gershom and the sons of Ithamar, Daniel of the sons of David. And so Daniel, he's alive right now as a prophet and a leader in Babylon. He dies in Babylon, but his people under Daniel are going with him. And then you also have people in the line of David that are going with Ezra on this mission. So he's got some really good stock of priests, nobles, and ordinary people. Verse 9, the sons of Joab, you've heard of him as well. Verse 6, the son of Jonathan. You've got some good lineage here. And they come in verse 15 to the river of Ahava, and they're going to be there for three days. Now, there are two crises that take place. First of all, we've been talking about Ezra's crisis of, do I ask for military? Almost like, do we run back to Artaxerxes and say, hey, we started, now I need some military support here because I'm scared. The first crisis, though, that hits Ezra begins in verse 15. He's at this tributary, he's at this little river, Ahava, and he realizes that none of the skilled, gifted Levite ministers have come on the mission. You know, it's almost like Ezra's scratching his head. He's taking inventory, he's thinking through what's happening, and it happened here, and he's going, look, we're all set up to enhance the worship that began 80 years ago down in Jerusalem. We've been hearing about this. Um, you know, you've got leadership that's already gone down there under Cyrus. They've rebuilt the temple, and we're going to reinforce this mission. But we got no Levites with us. So he's, again, I'm just pointing out that he's, he's reviewing the people. Verse 15, I gathered them at the river that runs to Ahava. We camped three days and reviewed the people. He was organized and the priest. And I found that there, found there none of the sons of Levi. Nobody's there with them. So he, he gathered, verse 16, these leading men. I'm not going to take the time to name, but verse 16 at the end, men of insight, and he sent them to Edu, which is a leader in a specific place called Casaphia, verse 17. It says, at the place, he sent the leading men, verse 17, at the place, Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edu and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Casaphia. So again, he's wise as a serpent. He gets the leaders. He's wise enough to take inventory on who's come, and he's wise enough to realize that, hey, I need Levites because we're doing temple worship down there, and so I need to make sure we got some of those people. And then he's wise enough to pick out leaders from this crop of leaders to go and talk to a specific person, and he scripts what they're supposed to say to try to get the most bang for his buck and get some Levites to come back. And it's sort of a maybe sad commentary, uh, you know, they did get one man of discretion, verse 18, that came. And then you have sort of 18 Levites that come as well. And then verse 19 says you have sort of 20 that come. And so you have kind of a, a take of, you know, 38 men that come out of this offer to get some more help. You see that? And then 220 temple servants that come to help the Levites as well in this venture. 
It does say that the good hand of God was on Ezra and this mission, verse 18. But it is kind of a, a small number of people that come. Why is that? And I just want to point this out. It, it's perhaps a parallel with the church today. You have a lot of Levites who are from the tribe of Levi. They're, they're raised to be temple worshipers. They're raised to facilitate worship. But just like in the church today, sometimes you get comfortable in your spot you know, Casaphia at this point was a place of worship. And so I think those Levites, they just, they didn't all want to come. They, you know, they were saying, look, Jeremiah told us in Jeremiah 29, we're supposed to, to dig in to this city in Babylon, to get comfortable, to do our thing. And here you're saying we're supposed to risk our lives and go down 900 miles to a place we've never lived before and do a whole lot of things under constraints and obligations that are a lot more than we're doing up here. We're not going to go. That's what happened in that situation. It was kind of a, a tough deal, a, a problem. But at the same time, you did get, in verse 18, a man of discretion that did come. So a leader amongst leaders came. And then you have some others and you have some temple servants. It says, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. That was part of you know, the Old Testament law to have these temple servants. These were all mentioned by name. So, again, Ezra was a man of discretion. We're not just supposed to shoot from the hip in our leadership. We are supposed to be organized. We are supposed to take calculated risks. But nevertheless, at times, we're called to take risks. What does it look like to, to be a risk taker? Well, I just want to say this. If you turn over to Romans chapter 14, it really is following your own conscience. You know, the more that I do ministry and work with a variety of people, the more I realize that... A lot of times, we're not supposed to tell people exactly what to do, but we're supposed to call them to have a humble attitude and to follow their conscience. In Romans 14, you have people who thought a day was more sacred than another day. And some people, you know, they would worship on the Saturday night service and Sunday morning, whenever. And you've got some people that say, no, no, I'm only going to worship on the Lord's day, and that's it, period, in public worship. You have some people that would eat meat sacrifice to idols, say, hey, this is some good ribeye. I don't care if part of it was sacrificed at the altar of, you know, who's it's, what's it, but I'm going to eat that because it's good meat, right? And then you've got some people that go, look, no, there was demon worship associated with that meat, and so I don't want to eat it. That's what was going on with the stronger and weaker brothers of Romans 14. Verse 10, though, says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans 14 is a great study as you parallel it with Ezra because Ezra had to make a judgment call. And if he would have asked for a military escort for him in that situation, that would have been sin. But for Nehemiah to accept a military escort in Nehemiah 2.9, guess what? It wasn't sin. So what do we do with these sort of conscience issues how do, we, how do we express vulnerable faith without, you know, being stupid, frankly? How do we know when to do, what to do? And how do we work with people that make different decisions than what we, are, than what we would decide? Well, we try to be as biblical as possible, and we try to be as humble as possible in our own lives, with our own decisions, and we don't judge other people with what and how they decide their life. You know, this week, last couple of weeks, I've had some very interesting counseling scenarios that have come to my door. 
And the Lord, through Ezra's example, has really given me the freedom at points to say, look, I want you to be as, as God-centered as possible. I want you to follow God's word. But really, I'm not going to exactly tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you how to be. I'm going to tell you to seek the Lord. But I'm not going to exactly script for you what you are supposed to do. I think that is such a freeing principle. And for your own life, you might be sitting there saying, I just don't know what to do. I don't know whether to move or not move. I don't know whether to stay in this relationship or not. And unless the Bible is explicitly clear where it says, look, you know, don't, you know, don't be bound to an unbeliever. Don't marry someone who's not a believer. You kind of have to make your best decision with the word of God and with the counsel of godly people around you and go for it. That's what Ezra is all about. If you go back to Ezra, I want to show you something. Let me show you what Ezra was not willing to risk. Ezra chapter 8, once again. He was willing to risk safety and goods and personal reputation, but he was not willing to risk God's reputation and God's blessing. Look at this. It says, I was ashamed to ask the king for the band for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we told the king the hand of our god is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him you know what he wasn't willing to risk he wasn't willing to risk god's reputation it's a great principle it's a great principle. When you're considering what to do or not do, you should think, first of all, in terms of the glory of God. Say, so when is it right to sort of push the envelope with my kids? You know, there's some things that you sort of let them do, and there's some things where you say, I'm going to draw the line in the sand, and I need to have a conversation about this. Or, when is it right in terms of risking your own reputation, you say, look, you know, I've crossed a line and I need to talk to my spouse about that. Or my spouse needs to talk to me about that. And I'm going to sort of put my cards on the table. Well, you need to be thinking not in terms of risking your own reputation. You need to be thinking in terms of what is God's glory in this situation. I don't want to risk his glory. I want his glory to be on display in my life and in my family and in where we're going. That's when you have the hard conversation. That's when you risk vulnerability. That's when you act like that dove. You just trust the Lord. And that's what he's doing here. He says that the hand of our God is good. And he knows he said that to the king over and over again. The permanent help of God. That phrase is used six times in this book of the Bible. Two times in Nehemiah. It's very important to Ezra to guard and protect the glory of God. Secondly... He doesn't want to risk the blessing of God. Look at verse 23. It says, So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The word entreaty here is, is the idea of seeking God, throwing yourself out there, throwing yourself before God. It wasn't an easy decision to make, but he prayed long and hard for that, and God blessed. How do we know God blessed? Look at verse 31. What happened at the end of the journey? Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day for the first of the first month to go to Jerusalem. It says, The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. The language here actually is saying that the 
it wasn't that they were escaping near ambushes or seeing enemies. It was more the idea that they were actually protected from any ambushes at all. I mean, it's crazy protection. Kind of reminds me of when I was 14 and on a missions trip. I was doing some evangelism on the East Coast through my youth group. And um, I showed up and we were put up in this sort of... Um, hotel right on Madison Square Garden right there and what do you do as a 14 year old when you're unsupervised with some friends up in your room down in Manhattan you know in the the heart of New York City with millions of people well you go down and you go exploring of course and so I went down and walked around you know the block talk about being vulnerable and unprotected in a scary place so now the Lord's hand of protection was on me. I saw a couple muggings, a few you know, different things that were going on where people were screaming at each other, and then I ventured back up into the hotel. That's called being vulnerable. This is that kind of vulnerability where you are going 10-mile jaunts down the river Euphrates, and, and what was happening is whether enemies were there or not, they were looking at the gold and silver past them by, and they were saying, we're not going for it. We're not going to ambush him. Why, why did that happen? Because God was blessing the faith of Ezra. But I want to show you something, and I've sort of made this point already, but it says in the ESV, I, in, your, in your other translations, it might say that God answered, but literally the sense of verse 23 is that God listened, he heard the prayer, but there was no audible voice where God was saying, listen, Ezra, on this scenario I want you to go you're not going to have any protection from man but I'm going to protect you and you're going to be fine Ezra he didn't hear directly from God at this point he just went for it he just made a call and I'm telling you there are times in your life where you're just going to have to pray about it think about it ask for help about it seek the word about it look at Scripture that directly addresses it and indirectly addresses your issue, and then you're going to have to just make a call, make a judgment call on what you're supposed to do. There are times as Christians, a lot of times, where you got to just pray about it, seek the Lord, seek counsel, and then just jump. That's it, right? I mean, you, you, don't, you don't know how things are going to fall out for you, whether it was, you know, when I got married, when I took certain jobs, when I moved to Alaska, when we decided to have more kids. I mean, there, there are calculated risks, but they're still risks nevertheless. And you just jump and you trust the Lord. That's what Ezra did, and that's what God uniquely blessed. So a couple principles are we don't judge people when they jump when we wouldn't have jumped. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. And if it's sin for that person to do it, then let that be sin for that person to do it. But you don't judge that person for what they do or don't do. As long as it's not going overtly in contrast to what Scripture says, you let people live their lives, right? We do. On all fronts. On entertainment choices, on school choices, on you know, family, friend choices. You let people live their lives as long as it's sort of in line and not going contrary to Scripture. That's the point of Romans 14, and I think that's what we see here in this example. God blesses that so often. It's not, exa it's not exactly saying, well, this is an Ezra scenario, and so I'm going on Ezra here, and I'm going to do this. It's not that. It's look at Ezra's attitude of faith and watch God bless Ezra, and bless your life as well. And I watched a, 
a movie one time and just thinking about this sort of vulnerable posture and it was two um, friends that were part of some sort of weird secret society and they got crosswise with each other and they were set up to figure out their dilemma with a a duel and so they sort of had to march you know 20 paces and turn and fire on each other and the one guy when when he turned to fire he was for sure going to be gunned down because the other person was a marksman what he did instead of turning to fire is he just opened up opened himself up like this and just said I'm I'm vulnerable and the guy you know couldn't couldn't shoot him I just think that's how we got to be you know, you're wise, you're calculated, you know the risks, you take the steps, and then you just you open yourself up. Could be that the Lord is leading you to be involved in a small group or a Bible study or a relationship where, you're, where you need to open yourself up. Could be that you need to open up to your spouse in a, a new level, a new way, or your children at a new level for God to bless. And I can't script all of those things out for you, but the Lord will impress upon you, I believe, what you are supposed to be doing as you open yourself up to the glory of God and for his help. Well, here's, here's a few ways that I've framed this with some take-home meditations. Number one, how do you know when to take caution and when to risk, take a risk on life issues? When is it faith or when is it just stupidity? The answer Set yourself up, and I tell people this all the time, set yourself up to be blessed by God by cleaning the cup. What do I mean by that? Well, simply this. Uh, if the Bible doesn't exactly tell you what you're supposed to do, even though I believe in the full and complete sufficiency of Scripture, the best thing that you can do is obey the areas that you know you're supposed to obey and set yourself up to be blessed. Cleaning the cup. Are you in the Word of God? Are you regularly repenting? Are you right with the Lord? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation and for your spiritual growth? Are you in fellowship? Are you in church? Are you connected with the body? Are you accountable to people? Are people speaking into your lives? Have you sought the, you know, the abundance of wisdom and the multitude of counselors that, that's repeated in the Proverbs over and over again? Is that what's happening in your life? Because if you do that, then you'll be like a plant that's wilting under the pressure of a decision you need to make that's put in the sunlight where the, the soil is fertilized, right? It's watered, it's set up, and set up to grow. We just had that sort of done to our yard um, just the other day it was you know it was sort of raked up and you know it, it was sort of opened up with the different machinery that sort of aerates the the soil and then we're supposed to water it I haven't watered my backyard yet but if I don't water my backyard it's not going to see the growth that needs to happen remind me about that later on this afternoon this this is this is a good metaphor for spiritual growth we can't force growth to happen in our lives god's the one that grows us god's the one that gives us wisdom but he gives us his word for us to set ourselves up to make the best decision because our attitude is shepherded by the word and by his holy spirit so set yourself up to be blessed Apply direct, indirect Bible passages on your issue, and then go get counsel. Don't be afraid to ask people for help. I think so often we're afraid to get counsel. We've kind of stigmatized the idea of going in for counseling, but really the church should be an ongoing counseling room for help and decisions. Number two, 
Striking the wise yet vulnerable balance is the key for facing hard life issues. Now, we've talked about some of these already. Who should I marry? Well, you should marry someone that's a Christian. Supposed to marry in the Lord. If you've married someone who's not in the Lord, then you repent of that, but you stay married. You stay married. Unless there is a biblical reason for a divorce, you, you stay married because you want to seek the salvation of your spouse. How vulnerable should I be with my spouse and my family? That's a judgment call. You don't want to put more on your wife or your husband than he or she can bear. You deal with the Lord's work in your life first. But then at some level, you have to open yourself up because you are part of a one flesh relationship. And if things are going bad spiritually for you, personally, then it is affecting your spouse. It is affecting your kids. How open should you be to your kids? We should be pretty vulnerable. I remember when I first heard that principle, when I was having a, my first child, I was thinking, you know, I don't, I don't need to be vulnerable to my child because I'm just the leader and I need to hold the standard. And there's a very delicate balance there where you hold the standard for God's glory, but at the same time, you become a human who is struggling with sin in front of your child and create that open, transparent relationship. And you watch the Lord bless through that because he does. Because guess what? Your kids know and your wife or your husband knows. They know what's going on. They sense it. They see it. They live with you. So it's important to risk that kind of vulnerability. Where should I draw the line in parenting my children? There are, there are times where you got to go for it, where you got to say, look, in faith, I'm just saying no. There are times where you got to say, I don't know all the reasons why, but my conscience is firing. I've got a warning light in my heart, and I'm just saying no for your sake. And the Bible says in Hebrews 13 that a child who receives discipline from his parent knows that his parent loves him or her. When, you should, when should you take a stand that will offend, where you're going to put yourself out there and you're going to say, look, I'm not going to sign this contract because it's, it, it lacks integrity, it lacks ethical you know, purity, and so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to toe the party line. There are times where you're supposed to do that. I've talked to people about that in the church where they know that their employer is going contra to righteousness. And it's just like, where do you say, you know what, I'm going to put my job in jeopardy, but I'm not going to go there. You've got to be wise as serpents and innocent or vulnerable as doves. How much time, money, or, you know... How much of myself should I give towards something? I would say, you know what? You need to pray very, very sincerely and diligently about what the Lord would have you do in terms of what you contribute to. I mean, you've heard it said again and again that you know our priorities by our checkbook, and that's really true. Jesus put it this way, that, you know, where our treasure is, our heart is also. So we learn what our priorities and our values are by what we give our money to and our time to and our effort to. So we have to always examine that as well. But you're not going to always know exactly what to do. You say, just tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I can't do that for you, but I can tell you how you are supposed to be. And that's being humble. How open should I be to others about my faith? There's times where we're supposed to just be, you know, like with my neighbors or different people. There's times where you just interact with your neighbors and you're living your life in front of them. And there's very definite, divinely appointed segues where you say, you know what, Jesus. Let's talk about him. You know what, I've seen him. 
I've heard from him, I've felt him, I've witnessed him, I've, I know him personally, and so let me tell you about my best friend, who's my Lord, who created everything. I mean, there's times that you're supposed to go there. Who's the greatest example of a risk taker who was wise and innocent? Jesus Christ himself. Really, that's who we're talking about is Jesus. Jesus who faced the Pharisees, who wanted to trip him up, who in John chapter 8, you know, they were trying to um, get him to discredit himself. And Jesus says, listen, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. And the Pharisees are going, look, we don't need to be freed from anything. We're from our father Abraham. He says, no, you're from your father the devil. And at that point, they challenge him again. And they're, they're sort of saying, Jesus, are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? Jesus says, look, let me just tell you who I am. I'm God in the flesh because before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus said he was the self-existent one. And that was too much for these enemies of the cross. And they pick stones up to kill and crush Jesus. Jesus somehow evades those stones and gets away because it was not his time. He was operating in cunning transparency, cunning vulnerability, but then there was a time at the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came with pitchforks and torches to kill and take away Jesus and kill him and beat him, and Jesus says to Peter, listen, put away your sword, Peter, because I could have called a legion of angels, 10,000 angels, to address this issue. I could have asked for the military escort, and I'm saying no, because right now it's time for me to become ultimately vulnerable for the sake of the world. And that's what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for your truth. And I pray, God, that we could strike the balance of vulnerability and caution. I pray that we could be wise and innocent. Lord, help us to be like Ezra, but more importantly, make us like Christ. We can't grow ourselves, but Lord, we can grow in grace by the power of your spirit. So help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand up.